We're in week number two on a series called Order. We talked last week about the holiness of God. And we ended talking about Esau where he forfeited his birthright for a bowl of soup. He satisfied his flesh. He gave in to an impulse and it cost him the rest of his life. And so many believers live like that. They get in a moment of crisis, a moment of need, desperation. And a lot of times the devil, the earlier and get it to happen in a person's life, the more damage he can do. And so <clears throat> this week we want to pick up and talk about order. And I'm going to take a, we're going to move forward into foundational understanding of principles, profound concepts that set up. Now there'll be days and we're coming There'll be Sundays where we'll talk about order in the home, order in the marriage, the role of the husband, the wife, order in your body, the temple of God, eating right and honoring it. Um, we'll talk about finances and different things. But we're, we're really foundational right now. And so I want to pick up, and if I had to give the sermon title, if I had to give the sermon a title this morning, it would be called Back to the Future. Because we're going to deal with another old word that we need to pull out. And we need to talk about it again. Um, speaking of order, Candace is gifted in the kitchen as a homemaker. Um, she's a great cook, great mommy, great wife. She's had a lot of practice. But uh, honestly, I, I truly honor her. She has, she, she has her MBA. She's educated. And she got her MBA so she could manage the home that... She married the wrong guy. Thank God. God gave her an MBA. And she spends her life just keeping us ordered. And there's a, there's, she's gifted in the kitchen. And um, she can whip stuff up. She knows how to do it all. And um, there's a person in our family that when, when they're in the kitchen, Candace has told me before, like with her teeth gritted, like when they're in the kitchen and, and they're holding the knife, I, I want to... It's a person in the family that's more creative, and they're not wired and experienced. Anybody know what I'm talking And Candace's like, I don't want to eat what you're fixing because you're not doing it right. It's out of order. And um, this morning, I've, as a pastor, so many times I go, can I speak into your life? You're, you're going you're gonna to hurt somebody, you know? And that's how I feel. And so this morning... I want to say to you, everybody, we've raised seven kids. The last one just turned 16, got his driver's license. And we've raised a lot of kids. I've done a lot of fathering. And pastoring is a lot like that, the way the Lord calls me to do it. Being a real shepherd, sometimes like I've had to learn how to say the hard thing to kids that I love and to not damage the relationship. And that's a, only God can give you that gift. It's sensitive heart and skilled in communication. And as your pastor, sometimes I had to help my kids understand you got to take the medicine. You got to eat the collard greens. You know, you got to eat your vegetables. And as a pastor, I come to you this morning and, and, and I want to speak to you as a father, as, a, as, as your pastor, your shepherd. And we're going to look at the passage of Scripture in 1 John. I just want you to see John, the writer. Even in this chapter, four times before we get to our text, he, he called the people he was writing to. He said, my dear children, verse 1. He said, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Verse 7, then he says, dear friends, 
I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. Again, back to the future. We're not talking about anything um, that's irrelevant. We're going back and pulling some stuff that got dusty, some concepts from Scripture that we need. And it's, it's like, if we don't do these things, you're working in the kitchen in a way that you're going to hurt somebody. And, and God wants to give you some order. The next verse, verse 12, he says, I'm writing, I'm writing to you. And he calls him again for the second time, dear children. Verse 14, he says, I write to you, dear children. You're like, John, you've already said it five times, man. Dear children. And so two things I want to lay as a foundation and we'll probably come back to these more than once in this series. But everybody listen. In my prayer time, the Lord said, establish this as the groundwork, as an intro for where we're going. Two things I want to say to you. The first one is, everything is connected. All of life relates to all of life. You don't get to do something in the dark that you don't pay for or it gets revealed later in the light. You don't get to just spend your money any old way you want and it not impact anything. Your worship, it impacts your life. The way you talk to your wife, the way you talk to your children, the way you talk to your husband. You don't get to just do whatever your flesh wants to do. All of life is connected. And that's why order and alignment is so important. Well, this will be a text in a few weeks, 3 John. It's only one chapter, so verse 2 says this. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things be in health. Think about that you'll prosper and be healthy in all things, not just physically, all things. And he says, even or just as your soul prospers. Everybody listen. This is what I'm getting at. Everything's connected. The old King James says, may you prosper as your soul prospers. And this is where we're broken. This is where people need to get saved. Jesus saved my soul. This is Romans 12, that, that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not blend into the culture without thinking about it. And so I pray that you will prosper even as your soul prospers. And so we come, understand all life's connected, and we want to get our souls right, our mind, how we think, our emotions, how we feel, and our decisions or our will, the way we make decisions. Everybody listen. The way you think determines how you feel. How you think and feel dictates the decisions you make. And the Bible says, may you prosper. In all things, may you be healthy as your soul prospers. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction is, just hear me, sin is so dumb. It's so, Satan's a great marketing salesman. He can sell sin, and then he's a remarkable prosecuting attorney. And he'll go, you are so stupid to fall for that again. And he just, chatterbox, Stephen Furtick, it's just, and that's what happens. And so, the second thing I want to say to you, Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is what? Say it. It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the gospel isn't the wages of sin is death, period. No, the gospel is the wages of sin, comma. But 
The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So how many of you are thankful that the gospel is truly good news? Come on, somebody ought to say it. Amen. Now, the message says, work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. And that's what you'll do. If you are given to letting your flesh be in charge, and you think, I can talk to my wife anyway. I can talk to my children. I can... Uh, what I do in the secret, I'm not bothering anybody. Oh, yes, you are. And the wages of that kind of lifestyle, that pension that you'll live on is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life. Hebrews 11 says there's pleasure in sin for a season. Numbers 32, 23 says, but you can be sure your sin will find you out. And so those are the two foundational thoughts I just want you to get. Everything is connected. And sin, it's deadly. It's lethal. It might feel good for a season, but it's like eating too much at the varsity. You get in the car and you're going, what in the world would we think? Anybody know that's the truth? All right. Now, um, so we talked about holiness last week. This morning, I want to talk to you about, are y'all ready for this? Y'all ain't ready for this. Y'all ready for this? Worldliness. How many of you have ever heard that word in church, worldliness? How many of you, you can't remember the last time you heard, but you heard it. How many of you say it's been too long since I heard that word? Worldliness. And you may, all, y'all already looking at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Pastor Chuck, holiness the first Sunday of the new year. And worldliness, the second Sunday. What has gotten into you? The Word of God. That's what's gotten into me. And the Holy Spirit. And a fatherly love for you. We got to talk about this. So, I, I could say so much. I ran out of time. Y'all know how I struggle with time. But there's so much... Holiness last week, it's the beginning of everything. It's, it's the beginning of you having a good God view. When you see God as he really is, like Isaiah did, holy, then you see yourself. Because his holiness is why he had to send Jesus to the cross to pay for our sins and to get reestablished in relationship with us. And when Peter said to Jesus, when Jesus said, who do men say I am? Oh, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus made it personal. Who do you say I am? And Peter blurted out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There is a ton of revelation in that. Jesus, I mean, to say, to blurt it out before the cross and resurrection. Peter gets a lot of flack for being who he was. Spoke too soon, always had his foot in his mouth. But on this occasion, he nailed it. Before anybody knew he was the Messiah, except Mary and Joseph, he goes, you're the Christ. And then to say, the son of the living God, in a system where religion was dead and people were hypocrites in the temple, Peter said, I know who you are. And then Jesus said, now that you can say who I am, let me say who you are. And he said, you are a rock. And it's people like you who didn't have a spine and then you got revelation 
I'm going to build my church on people like you, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so when you see, you seeing God's holiness isn't a scary thing, it's not a religious thing, it's about you discovering your life. And that's what we're after. That's the, the ways of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And it, the quality of eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts when you get saved. And he wants you to experience that life now. So that's the introduction. Y'all ready for the sermon? Y'all ready for the sermon? You love the word? Come on, you got to tell yourself. Right, let's listen to the word. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust, and here are the three traps, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The message translation makes it so street worthy. Don't love the world's ways, don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, and here are the three traps, according to the paraphrase of Gene Edwards in the, trans, uh, uh, the message. Wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important. And that has nothing to do with the Father. Just listen to this. It isolates you from him. You don't get your birthright. You may get the stuff and you may feel important, but what you gave up, it's not worth what you gave up. Now, what makes love sinful? I'm moving quickly. Love, it's like we need to love. Christians need to love. And it's almost like there's a new religion of love. But love can be sinful. What makes love sinful? Love becomes sinful when it is directed at the wrong object. But the Bible tells us over and over and over, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you have love for one another. He even said, love your enemies as you love yourself. Love your neighbor. Here we're told, though, do not love the world or anything in the world. When John writes, if you study even in the Gospel of John, he uses the world in three different ways. First is the cosmos, and that is... The created world, the physical world. He's not saying right here, don't love the created world, because we know the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of our God. Nature is beautiful, and it worships God, and there's something about a man or a woman being called to nature. That's worshipful and beautiful and God-honoring, but he's not saying don't love the created world. Second thing, when John writes, he talks sometimes about the people in the world, the people that inhabit this world. The people that God created, the others that live, humankind that lives on planet Earth. He's not saying here, don't love those people. He's saying the third thing that when he uses it, sometimes when he says the world, he's referring to the spiritual realm that is in opposition to God and in rebellion against his kingdom. Paul refers to this in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual forces, evil, wickedness in high places. There's a real world 
that is unseen, but how many of you know it's a real world? And John is saying, don't love that world that will indoctrinate you and program you against God and against his kingdom. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father, please listen to me. We're going a little deeper, putting meat on the bone. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father, it, it can't be in them. Because worldliness is not so much an activity, what you do or where you go. It's an attitude of the heart. It's an inward covet, a love, a, a, a lust for things. And to the extent that the Christian loves the world system, he can't love the Father. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, 200, more than 200 years ago, he said, For the Christian who loves the world can't receive the love of God. It's like trying to pour water into a ball. It can't contain it. Take water and pour it on a basketball. It will be touched by it. It will be wet, and then it will drip off of it, and it will dry. He said, for the man who loves the world, the love of God, it, it has no place. It can't be in him. Christian loves the world system. Um, worldliness not only affects your response to the love of God, your inability to contain it, it also affects your response to the will of God. You live in the world, love the things of the world, you would choose your will or somebody else's over God's will. And this is very common. And the next, past, the next verse past our text, we read from 1 John 2, 15 and 16, the next verse right after that says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Please listen. When you put these two factors together, you have a practical definition for worldliness. And it is anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose the enjoyment of the Father's love or his desire to do the Father's will is worldly and must be avoided. Now, responding to the Father's love, your devotional life, and doing the Father's will, your daily conduct, these are the two tests of worldliness. And I would ask, it's quiet in here, and that's okay. There's a lot of inventory happening, a lot of meat on the bone. We're going deep. We're preparing for a revival. And I'm trying to father and shepherd. Now, sense the anointing on what I'm saying. Have you been transformed by the love of God, the most powerful force in the universe? It's not congressional power. Military, atomic, nuclear, financial power. The only reason people that don't love God don't love God is because they've never been touched. They've never experienced the love of God. The love of God is so powerful, it's irresistible. And so, do you have room, or are you a basketball, leather basketball? The, it gets poured over you, and you hear about it, know about it, and you know people who have been have experienced it but you've never really been able to contain the love of God that's a large percentage of people in this room it's common what about the will of God when, the turning point in my young life was when I came to the place and I realized 
And I, when I was in my early 20s, I really was able to say, God, I don't want what I want. I have learned at this young age, I want what you want. I don't even have wants. You're my shepherd, David said. I don't even have wants. Have you gotten to the place where you go, I remember for me, it was, God, intervene, intercept my, cancel my will. When I choose my will, don't let me, because I know your will is better than mine. And that is what we're talking getting set free from the spirit, the indoctrinating, lethal, toxic spirit of the world. The world system uses three devices to trap Christians. And John writes them, they're in our text. The first one is the lust of the flesh. And that, as I said last week, this isn't flesh. The flesh is that right here. The innate desire to want something that's not spiritually beneficial. It's just natural to you. As a child, you, no one had to teach you to say, mine. As a child, you said mine. You said it naturally and selfishly. As an adult, you're doing the same thing. You make things that you don't need mine naturally and selfishly. And that's the flesh. Listen to me. Listen. Do you know all sin is either feeding your flesh or protecting your flesh? All sin. And he says, number one, get set free from the spirit of the world. Don't let the lust of the flesh control you. Y'all out there? Y'all still love your pastor? Just not as much as you did 30 minutes ago. It's all right. <laughs> Secondly, he said, the second trap is the lust of the eyes. Come on, somebody. Those things that you want to see, your flesh wants to see, that you know you shouldn't see, you shouldn't look at. Things you look at that make you feel alive or feel good and lead you down a path that you should not be on. And I'm talking about things like movies and entertainment and places you go to see things that you shouldn't see. And somehow you're, listen, the flesh has an amazing way of resurrecting. You crucify your flesh, that thing will come right back up. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And your flesh will say, no, it's okay. That movie's funny. It's, it's funny. Everybody's seeing that movie. And the number of Christians that, uh, do I need to say it? Y'all out there? It's stupid. And I would say to you, you can't lose weight on a Snickers diet. You say, Pastor Chuck, I only ate two of them. Try it. You can't lose weight eating. Snickers satisfies, Pastor Chuck. It says it right there on the label. <laughs> Try it. It doesn't satisfy you. It makes you feel full with a bunch of toxic chemicals. And it tastes great going down. Can I get a witness? Anybody been on the back nine playing golf and you're like, oh, if I could just have, and that commercial, can you're like. And then all of a sudden you take one bite of a Snickers bar. That's what we do spiritually. God deliver us from these things. Well, Pastor Chuck makes me feel better. Stop living according to how you feel. Grow up. You're 28 years old now. Life is about more than how you feel. Come on, somebody. Say amen. It's the truth. God deliver us from the religion of emotions. You really want to feel good? Live holy. 
That's a feeling that nobody can take away from you. Number three. Are we finished with number two? Did I park there long enough? (laughs) Pastor Chuck, you go to the gym. I know. And I have to wear like blinders sometimes. I didn't say this. I feel it coming on. The gym's one of the hardest places I go. That's why I have sermons, worship music, and I like to keep my head down, get my work done, and get out of there. You might know I'm telling you the truth this morning. And the number of Christians that go, and you feed your flesh. It's not smart. It's not wise. I got to keep on moving. Number three, the pride of life. Those things that you want, that you don't need. Things that make you feel important, impressive. Those things that you know. When other people see that you have them, it causes them to covet and think you're all that. That nice car, God gave it to you. Enjoy it. But you don't need to go to your car after lunch and hope your buddy sees what kind of car you're getting into. If you do, you don't have a car. A car has you. And God wants to say... It's a a rare man who can have a full cup and be trusted with it and not worship his full cup, but worship the one who filled his cup up. And that's freedom. I'm not saying you can't have nice things. We have nice things, but they do not have us. I could get in that old 20-year-old Jeep with 200,000 miles on it right now and drive it the rest of my life if God wants me to. I didn't share this in first service. We didn't have time. Listen to me. I'm getting ready to go to D.C. this week. And I've been invited to a gala and going to be at uh, the March for Life. Pray for me. I ain't been to D.C. in a long time. I don't want to get any spirits on me. You know what I'm saying? But when, I, when your pastor goes out of town, I get an economy car for a reason. It, it's all I need. But it's for my flesh. Because not all my pastoral friends do that. They get a a nice car. Because pastors deal with this too. But I know that God's anointing on my life. All of life is connected. Everything's connected. I almost hate even telling you that. Because it robs the privacy of the, the intimacy I have with the Lord. Pride of life. Man. Needing to feel important, look important. When you're the cho- you're a chosen generation, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. God sent Jesus to die for you. You are as special as special can be. Just get a good idea and keep a good vision of the Christ, the Son of the living God, so He can keep reminding you, you're a rock. You're precious to me. You're the apple of my eye. These three traps, they keep a lot of Christians in North Fulton from walking in freedom. And you go, well, 
I'm glad that's only in one place in the Bible. And let me tell you, those traps are what created the first sin. Satan said to Eve, did God really say he distorts the truth to tempt you with this same template? And you young guys in the well, oh man, you're, you still got your birthright. Don't trade it. Listen closely this morning. The enemy would have you to think, no, you've already met. No, don't let him lie to you. In Genesis 3, Satan says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. That's something I want. That's mine. That it was pleasant to the eyes. Second trap. And a tree desirable to make me like God. Wise. Pride of life. She took a bite. And we're here today in a world in chaos because of it. Then she gave it to Adam. And the Bible says he wasn't deceived. He knew. He knew what had just happened. And he, he took it and ate it. You go, well, man, wow. And then Satan uses the same tactic with Jesus in Matthew 4, Jesus comes out after fasting 40 days, 40 nights. So what's he, verse 2 of Matthew 4 says, after fasting 40 days, Jesus was hungry. You think? Duh. And then verse 3 says, the tempter, Satan, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, identity. If you, if you have a real birthright, prove it. Command these stones to... Be made into bread. And what did Jesus do? Deuteronomy 8.3 quoted. Said, man doesn't live on bread alone. Man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. First temptation. Lust of the flesh. You're famished. Eat something. Second temptation. Matthew 4, 8, and 9. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And look. And showed him all the kingdoms. Showed him something he could see. Lust of the eyes. What did Jesus do? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 13. Fired back the word of God. The third temptation trap, Matthew 4. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Everybody listen closely. This is why you need to know the word of God. Then Satan goes, all right, Jesus, you want to quote the word of God to me? That's our terms? That's how you want to roll? And then he quotes... Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, out of context. And he says, hey, I'll give you all this if you'll throw yourself down from the temple. And then he quotes Psalm 91, the great passage. He says, God will command his angels concerning you. He will catch you. And he quoted, the, Jesus did, Deuteronomy 7, 13 says, no, you're not supposed to tempt the Lord your God. And what was Satan doing? Show off. Prove who you are. Flex! And Jesus said, uh-uh, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. How do you deal with these traps in the world? You know the word and speak the word. And so I say to you this morning, my dear children, this is his strategy and it's worked since the garden so well that Satan tried it on Jesus. 
Didn't work. Tried it on Eve. It worked. Now this morning, right here, sitting right here, there's a little heartburn. There's not as much laughing. There's not as many amens this morning. And some of y'all are sweating. And you're dying. Some of you, the devil's trying to get you to go get a drink of water right now. That's how he works. What's happening? There's some heartburn. You know what spiritual heartburn is? It happens in spirit-filled churches. Because pastors stand up with a boldness and they preach the word of God lovingly, but and it confronts and does what the Holy Spirit said it would do. Holy, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness. Sin, because it will kill you and the Holy Spirit doesn't want you dead. And it will say, no, stop doing that. How many of you are thankful for the conviction of sin? Amen. Aren't you glad you're still, you're not spiritually dead. You're not, your conscience hasn't been seared. You can still feel conviction. But the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, it will also convict the world of righteousness. Where if you're sitting there going, all caught up in anxiety or living in your past, Holy Spirit will go, you're forgiven of that. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. You're righteous. How many of you are thankful Holy Spirit does that too? But what happens in a church like this, and I've done this long enough, in North Fulton, um, new family will come, and often the wife will go, I love this church. Because she's sitting there secretly going, my, finally, somebody's saying stuff my husband needs to hear. And the husband will go, I hate that church. <laughs> Seriously, because his flesh is being exposed. And when spirit meets flesh, flesh has a heartburn. In Luke chapter 24, please listen closely. It's early part of Luke 24. It's the morning of the resurrection. Jesus, Sunday morning, Easter resurrection Sunday, he, he arises and the women go to the tomb, and then the women go and tell the disciples, he's risen. And there are two disciples have left Jerusalem, seven-mile walk to Emmaus. And so they're overwhelmed, as you would be, worst weekend of your life, the Messiah that you thought the Messiah has been crucified. And what happens, please catch this, Jesus walks up, with those two who are overwhelmed in depression. And he says to them, what's going on? And one of them turns around, and the Bible says he doesn't recognize Jesus. Often in a crisis, you don't recognize what God's doing in the crisis. And the guy turns to Jesus and says, what do you mean what's going on? And he says, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? And Jesus doesn't lie. He doesn't. He says, what happened? And God will do that. He'll ask you some open-ended questions. There'll be some situations unfold in your crisis where you got to think and then you got to speak the word of God. Are y'all out there? And so when Jesus said, what happened? They start going, we thought that guy that was killed on Friday, Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah and that he was going to save us and deliver us from Caesar. And that he was, we, we had him in the Oval Office in the White House. And then the religious people came and 
They actually crucified him. He was buried. And then the crazy women that he had delivered, they got undelivered and they came and tried to tell us that he's risen. And Jesus, still, them not knowing who he is, the Bible says he went back through the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, from Moses through, the, and he explained about the Messiah. And they were getting their hopes up and still didn't know who he was. They got to a fork in the road, and the disciples going to Emmaus had to turn right, and Jesus acted. The Bible says he acted as if he was going to go on. And God will do that where you have to invite him into your situation. Y'all out there? And then they say, oh, hey, come on, it's a long, I don't know where you're going, but our house is right over here. Come on with us. And the Bible said he went with them, sat down. And then the Bible says when he broke bread, their eyes were opened. They thought, we've seen that before. How he... And there's table theology. It's amazing what can happen around the table when Christians eat. It's a powerful thing throughout the New Testament. And the Bible says when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. And they realized who he was. And then he disappeared. And just a few minutes later, they begin to reflect. And one of them said to the other, when he was talking was your heart burning? You know what? You want to go to a church on the regular that you get spiritual heartburn. It's not heartburn like it's dangerous. There's, listen, there's a Holy Spirit inside you trying to raise you up and set you free from the traps of the flesh, the eyes, and pride. And when, when the Holy Spirit hears truth, like Jesus walked him through from Moses through the prophets, their hearts were burning. Oh, I know what it's like to hear a sermon where you go, that's not a man talking. That's not a person talking. I feel it right now. And I'm preaching the sermon. And it's speaking to me. There's an anointing. There's an unction in here. Do we believe the Bible is true or not? Heaven comes to the earth. We were taught to pray, kingdom of God, come. God wants to speak. And that heartburn is a call for you. And you're going, I want to be set free. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he was spineless, up and down, foot in his mouth. And they had just accused them on the day of Pentecost when they got baptized in the Holy Spirit. The people, onlookers, said, they're drunk. Peter stood up. We're not drunk. I know you're not used to seeing people this happy this early in the morning, but let me tell you something. This isn't leftovers from too much wine last night. This is what the prophet Joel prophesied. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Young men see visions. And then he marched them through, did the same thing Jesus did. He said, this Jesus that you crucified, he wasn't another teacher. He wasn't another prophet. He was the son of God. And you and your religious system, 
Y'all are the ones that killed him, and the blood is on your hands. And the Bible says in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And what did they do? What is cut to the heart? It's when you hear the word of God and you go, yes, I'm ready to repent. And, and the Bible said, they said, the Bible said they were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do now? And Peter said, repent, be baptized. Times of refreshing will come from the Lord. Y'all out there, times of refreshing, your birthright, living a real life, heartburn. God has come to heal our hearts. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said to God, I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world, the world, the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I'm not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one in the world. They are not of the world, he says again, even as I'm not of the world. Now look what verse 17 says. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He says, sanctify them by the truth. You know what it is to be sanctified. It's been a couple years since I've pulled out the old Ramsey teapot. Um, my sister... First of all, my mother, growing up in Virginia, my mother made a world-class sweet tea. Anybody like sweet tea? Anybody like sweet tea? Anybody could use an ice-cold glass right now? In fact, I could. Working up a sweat trying to preach to you all this morning. But, um, and my sister, Rhonda, got the gift. of She just knew how to make sweet tea. And at all of our family functions, the first drink to run out was Aunt Rhonda's sweet tea. I'll never forget, my, Candace and I sat at my mom and dad's house Years ago, and we said, Rhonda, how do you make it? And she said, first of all, you got to get a pot that you don't use for anything else but sweet tea. And then she said, you, you want to get good water. And then she says, we use, and she said, I think it was Lipton tea bag she uses. And we're taking these notes. And she said, you bring it to a boil. And as soon as it starts boiling, stop, take it off. And then she said, you'll, you'll, Ever how much you're making, you'll figure out exactly how much sugar you want. We got up, went to Walmart, and bought this expensive. It was the most expensive pot at Walmart. This one at Walmart was like $70. At Macy's, it'd be like $300 or something like that. But it's Walmart. And do you know what? That, this old pot has never had chili in it. Um, collard greens or mashed potatoes. The only thing this old pot has ever made for us is sweet tea. Our last neighborhood, when our kids are growing up, our kids love the tea and their friends love the tea. There would be times in our cul-de-sac, kids from our neighborhood would knock on our front door and ask, Mr. Ramsey, can we have some sweet tea? And I would say, oh, sure, come on in. Sometimes we'd act like we weren't home. We wouldn't open the, we wouldn't answer the door because we were low on the sweet tea. But we made it three gallons at a time. It took 18 minutes to, the, I set my, 18 minutes for it on that stove for it to come to a boil. Three gallons at a time. It got so popular in our neighborhood. I'm not exaggerating. Mothers would call our house and say, Mr. Ramsey, my kids have talked to me about your sweet tea 
could I get the recipe for your sweet tea? I'm telling you the truth. How many of you know that's some good sweet tea? We would drink it and often go, golly, have you ever had good sweet tea? It, there's nothing like it. This right here is the reason. This pot, if it could be personified, if you could hear it talk, where we even keep it in our kitchen, it's, it's over at the end by the window, all the way up, outside the cabinets on the top shelf. It's the only pot up there. You know why? So no little Ramsey can ever get it and put soup in it. If you could hear it every time we sit that thing up there, it's almost like you can. It's like that, that pot goes. And we'll pull a pot out from where all the pots are and we'll warm up some collard greens or some pintos like we got going right now. And it will look over and go, what you got today, Pintos? How was it down there the last three days? A bowl inside a bowl inside a bowl inside a pot. Collards, chili, Pintos, mashed potatoes. Ah! I feel so sorry for you, bless your heart. There's a better way. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this kitchen. Be transformed. Tell them, you only want to make chili. And the rest of your life, just make chili. One day you might even get a place up here with me. Do you know how special you are? How beauty how beautiful he is and his holiness. Are y'all out there? This is why the Bible says in Romans 12, Paul says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Are y'all listening? Come on, are you listening? I'm coming in. Can't preach all this time and miss the bullseye. Place it before God as an altar. Embrace what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Listen, don't become so well adjusted to your culture or the world that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. And this is your birthright. He develops well-formed maturity in you. Come on, somebody, say amen to the reading of God's Word. How many of you want your birthright? How many of you claim your inheritance? How many of you know there's more? There's a higher place. 
There's a better place, come on. And so, what have I said to you? I've said to you three things this morning. Number one, I want you to just recognize the spirit of the world. Everybody look right here, closing in just two minutes. When's the last time you thought, you found yourself in a place and you go, there's a spirit that's intoxicated me. I want to see things that I know I shouldn't. I'm saying mine to some stuff that I don't need. There's a false sense of security coming from me because I've been using my things to impress people. I don't have to ask, am I talking to anybody today? God wants you to be free from that stuff. He wants you to really be free. Galatians 5 says, it's for freedom that he has set us free. Y'all ready for this? You know, buying your daughter her prom dress. Do you even think about it? I'm not telling you what kind of dress to buy her, but buy her a dress. Don't buy her a half a dress. And all the people that love the Lord said amen, amen, and amen. Because we love our daughters. And we don't want some man, the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. Now we got to get counseling for the next 10 years because of what happened. Do you just, is there anywhere you go and the Holy Spirit goes, I know this is a, a big deal, but you don't have to go to the strip club to close it. Second thing I've said to you is, I want you to take your everyday life and place it before God as an offering. And the last thing I'll say, if you do these two things, you will be changed from the inside out. In Jesus' name. And so I just speak over you, brothers and sisters. I say, dear children, be set free from the spirit of the world. You have a better inheritance and a life than anything this old world has to offer. Now turn and tell two or three people around you, he's not bad for a country boy from Virginia, even so that, sound, that message sounds like 1972. Back to the future, the holiness of God and freedom from the spirit of worldliness. How many of you are free this morning? Come on, stand to your feet. And lift up a praise to the Lord if you sound like free people this morning. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father. We praise you, Lord. Come on, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. It is for freedom we've been set free. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray over these families, these men and women. I thank you for the revelation of your holiness. I thank you for the truth of your word. Jesus, you prayed to your Father for us. You said, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. You said in John 8 that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. You said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed in the name of Jesus. I just, I, I didn't do this in first service. I just got a vision. 
If you have a, something that's entangled you, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, and there's one thing the Lord's brought to you. I want you to take your fingers out like this is scissors right here. You're going to have to be childlike. And I want you to just take that thing and just that entanglement. I want you to just cut that rope right there, right now, in Jesus' name. Let pornography, um, thoughts of infidelity, text messages that I'm tempted to return that I know I shouldn't. Um, messages, Instagram, DMs, in the name of Jesus. My attachment to things that make me feel more secure. I'm delivered from that because the God of the universe is my Abba Father. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now lift your hands. Come on all over the room and just receive the Spirit of the Lord. Receive the strength, the boldness, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Just breathe it in. Come on, tell the Lord, I need, I want more of your spirit, Lord. Lead me, empower me, show me. Show me even more things about me than Pastor Chuck preached on this morning. Let your word marinate in me and bring me to a place of freedom, a place of life in the name of Jesus. Just tell the Lord one more time. Tell him, I declare, I will receive my inheritance in the name of Jesus. My heart will be pure and I will see the Lord in the name of Jesus. Come on, young people, men and women who are not married or those who are single again, in the name of Jesus, you will not marry somebody for a bowl of soup. You will wait on the Lord. You will not let your flesh talk you in to marrying someone outside of God's will in the name of Jesus. And I want to teach you to pray. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, He didn't say, Kingdom of God, please come. He taught us, it's in the imperative. Jesus taught us, you speak it. Kingdom of God, come in the earth. Come in my life. Will of God, be done in my life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Oh, the will of God is beautiful. He will take you beyond your wildest dreams in the name of Jesus. Deliver us from that good heartburn that hurts so good in the name of Jesus. Some of y'all, you're going to walk out here and feel like you saw the chiropractor this morning. How many of you know the adjustment hurts so good? And you might be sore for a couple hours, but you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and that lower back pain's going to be gone. Anybody know what I'm talking about? In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So I speak life over everybody here this morning. Great men and women of God are being raised up in this house. You're one of them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. May he lift his countenance up on you and give you peace. And may he bless your whole family in the name of Jesus. Just say it. I receive it. God bless you, everybody. Have a great afternoon.